Welcome to Langstaff Online. My name is Michael De Silva, and I am your host for episode 44. In this episode, we have been given permission to include a lecture that was hosted by Pablo Segal and delivered by Dr. John Walton on the subject of Job. Dr. Walton is an Old Testament scholar and professor at Wheaton College. He was a professor at Moody Bible Institute for 20 years. He specializes in ancient Near Eastern backgrounds of the Old Testament, especially Genesis and its creation account, as well as interpretation of Job. The message is entitled, Does Job Serve God for Nothing? The lecture is about 45 minutes with a 30-minute Q&A that follows. We trust you will at least enjoy the lecture and at the most will find the Q&A helpful as well. Now, when I unmuted, it just shows me. I don't want to see me. I want to see you. Ah, there we are. Okay. So, <laughs> good to see you all. I hardly know how to start. Um, Pablo wanted me to talk about Job. So I guess one of the best places to start is to try to understand what we expect when we open up the book of Job. Most of us have heard of Job, you know, anybody you know, raised with some Bible, kind of as an idea about this guy, a really good guy who suffered a lot. And so we we basically know about him. And th that part we know is his suffering. And that means that lots of people are inclined to think that the book is about suffering. Now, so to me, there are six basic misunderstandings about the text that we need to clear up so that we can get into it and understand it. Um, so the first one that I would raise is that Job has trials, but Job is not on trial. Job thinks he's on trial. Job's friends think he's on trial, but Job himself is not on trial. That's not what the book is about. Secondly, the book is more about God than it is about Job. It's called the book of Job, and you know they call it the book of Job because he's the main human character. They can't call it the book of God because every book in the Bible would be called the book of God. Then we couldn't look anything up. So it's called the book of Job, but it's really about God. Thirdly, it's more about God's wisdom than about God's justice. Some of us think that by the end of the book, we're going to understand why God does what he does in your life, in the world, in your city, in your church. You're going to get an explanation. You're not. The book is not going to explain God's justice and give some sort of defense for his justice. It's more about God's wisdom. And we'll get to each of these points. Now, fourthly, the book is not there to tell us how to think about suffering. It's not going to tell us why people suffer or why God allows that in the world. The book is about how should we think about God when we are suffering? Okay, that kind of idea. Fifth, it's more about trusting God when we don't have answers instead of getting answers. The book doesn't really give us a lot of answers, but it tells us how to move forward. And sixth, 
It's more about what constitutes righteousness instead of about why we suffer. The question posed at the beginning of the book is, does Job serve God for nothing? What, that, what that's getting at is, does Job serve God because it is profitable to serve God? Does he serve God because that gives him expectations of benefits? Does he serve God because that's worked out very well for him? Thank you. Does he serve God in sort of a give and take, you know, a kind of transactional situation? Okay, do you know what I mean by a transaction? We do for God, God does for us. Okay, so the question is, does God, does Job serve God for nothing? If there was no transaction, if there were nothing to gain, would he serve God anyway? And of course, the only way you can tell that is to take away everything that he gained. So the suffering is part of the unfolding of the question, does Job serve God for nothing? So the book is not about suffering. The book is about righteousness. The book is about why is God, no, I'm sorry, why is Job righteous? And if he maintains his righteousness, even when he gains nothing, in fact, when he loses everything, that would demonstrate that there was such a thing as what I'll call disinterested righteousness. That makes sense to you? It's disinterested. You don't have any vested interest in it. Is there such a thing in the world as disinterested righteousness? And in the end, spoiler alert, this is what the book is going to ask you. Is there such a thing as disinterested righteousness? And how are you doing on that? Um, is your relationship with God, is your faith transactional? Maybe even just subconsciously transactional. You expect that God owes you because of what you do with him, for him. Okay, so that question, what is the, what is the strength? of your righteousness? Would it withstand suffering, even very serious suffering? Okay, now, we've had a lot of opportunities to try that out in the last couple months. Job actually is a very uh, relevant book for the days that we're living in, not because we're, we're necessarily suffering very badly. Some are, many are not. But to think about the whole situation of what do we expect from God? Does God owe us? So I hope that these six questions help to refocus how we think about the book. Okay, it's about righteousness, it's about God, it's about God's wisdom, and things of that sort. So when we get to question time, you can ask questions about that um, for clarification or anything of that sort. So we enter into the book. Now, here's something just a little controversial. If you don't agree with this, that's fine. It's not a big deal. Okay, but when we ask, what kind of book is Job? Um, I believe that, that Job is a real person in a real past. I don't believe he's a made-up guy. Uh, I don't think that this is just a parable where the characters are just fictional or imaginary. A real guy in the real past. 
But I do believe that uh, this is not meant to be a telling of his life. I think that he's the, the narrator, the text, is using the life of Job in order to build what we call a thought experiment. What would happen if? Now, in one sense, I said it's not a parable, and that's I'm going to stick with that. But parables are also a sort of thought experiment. So when Jesus tells parables, so let's imagine, he says, let's imagine, you know, somebody on the road from Jericho to Jerusalem, and he's waylaid by bandits. Let's imagine this. He's not trying to tell you a story that really happened. It's realistic enough so that it sort of could have happened. But you'll notice that in almost every parable, there's also a point at which it passes the boundary of reality. Where, no, it wouldn't happen like that. And it moves into an extreme situation that then helps unpack the point that Jesus is trying to make. And I see the same thing, same sort of thing happening in the book of Job. It starts with a guy everybody knows, with a situation that they're familiar with with a situation that maybe they can even identify with a little bit, but then it moves everything to extremes. Job is the most righteous man you can imagine, and he suffers the most awful suffering that you could think of. And all of those extremes help to unpack the question. So the book is wisdom literature. It's not there to be a historical narrative. It's there to be wisdom literature. And one of the telling points about wisdom literature is that the point is true regardless of the narrative details. It's making a point. And that point is the teaching of the text. Its point is not, and these things really happened to Job. The point is not even, and this is what really happened in heaven. The heavenly scene, in in my view, I hope I'm not offending you, in my view, the heavenly scene is part of the thought experiment. We don't have to think that Job is trying to teach us about these are the things that go in and on in heaven. Pay attention so you know. I don't think that's the book's point at all. Anyway, regardless of whether you agree with that or not, the main thrust of that is to say, don't get hung up on the scene in heaven or the historical details or who the, the guys are that raid Job's cattle and take them. Don't, don't get hung up on the details. In fact, don't even get hung up on the detail of, well, when Job gets all his stuff back, his kids aren't bought, brought back to life. I mean, what about my kids? Don't, don't get hung up on that. Okay. Those kinds of, things can help us to lose track of what the wisdom teaching of the book is. Again, we want to be tethered. Thank you, Pablo. We want to be tethered to the author's intentions. What is the author intending to teach? That's where the authority of the book is. And therefore, we are accountable not to random details, we are accountable to the author's intention. 
And that's how we're going to get the authority of the book. The authority of the book of Job is in its wisdom teaching. And its wisdom teaching stands whether it's a narrative that every word recorded by the friends was exactly what they said in English. No, not in English, but it's exactly what they said. Or whether it's a thought experiment that kind of opens up a scenario uh, like the parables did. Okay. Now, again, I hope I didn't lose you all there. And now you're all saying, oh, this guy's crazy. Um, but that's, people have those questions. And again, I only raise it not to be controversial, but I raise it because those things can distract us. I don't care what date the book was written. I don't care whether it was written early or late. I don't care what the setting was early or late. Okay, it doesn't matter because the whole idea of wisdom literature is that it presents timeless truths that endure. And so the, the setting is simply window dressing. I'm not concerned about it. Okay, now. Uh, so let's talk about what the what the message of the book is. And then, um, I mean, there are a lot of details we could talk about, but I'll let those come up in the questions. Uh, let me talk to you about what I think the message of the book is and see if that can get us uh, ready for some discussion. Um, first of all, uh, remember that none of the characters in the book are correct. We know the friends are wrong. But Job is also wrong. Job does not have a good view of God. He does not have a healthy view of God. He does not do everything right. He doesn't have to do everything right. There's one thing he has to do right, and that is to maintain his righteousness even when life falls apart. That's the one thing he has to do. He can have a horrible view of God along the way. He can accuse God of all sorts of things, which he does. He can accuse God of injustice, which he does, and God calls him on it. So don't think that Job is the guy who's got it right and the friends have it wrong. They see things differently, but they're all wrong. And so in that sense, they're there to help us explore some of the very common, but wrong, answers. Because then hopefully we'll be in a position to accept what the book has to teach us along the way. Now, wrong answers are things like, no, you can't expect that um, your experiences are going to reflect your deeds. It's called the retribution principle. Righteous people prosper, wicked people suffer. Bingo, that's how it is. If God is just, this is the way it's got to be. The book of Job just tears that to shreds. That simply does not suffice. That's a wrong answer. It's a wrong answer to think that God is just up there doing whatever he does and he doesn't care. That's not the right answer. The right answer is not that God is a petty God. Pick, 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 pick on every little thing you do. That's what Job thought. And in fact, that, that illustration right at the beginning of the book, in chapter 1, verses 4 and 5, where it talks about what he did for his children after they had their parties. Sometimes we look at that and we think, oh, this is, 
telling us what a great guy Job is. No, four and five is setting you up. It's going to tell you what, what cripples him. Because that little thing that he did for his kids in verses four and five shows that he believes God is petty. Picking on the littlest things and zapping you for it. And he expresses that numerous times through the book. Because he becomes more and more convinced of that as the time goes on. And that actually becomes the, the chink in his armor, the flaw that Satan is going to pick on. Does Job serve God for nothing? Or does he expect that he can buy you off? So that's the chink in his armor, and it's exploited in the book. So that's a wrong answer. Uh, it's a wrong answer to say, oh, humans are all just bad people and you know, you're going to get horrible things happening to you all the time. It's got a lot of wrong answers that are that people throw around in the dialogues. Job, he does that one thing right. He does hold on to his integrity. Uh, when you get a chance, read chapter 27, verses 1 through 6. Makes it very clear. That's at the end of the dialogue section. The dialogue section goes from chapter 4 through chapter 27. Um, and in 27, 1 through 6, Job makes his, his last stand and he says, you guys, you, you're done. You've got nothing. And you haven't helped at all. So that's one thing that Job does well, but he does lots of things wrong. And that's why he has to repent at the end of the book. Okay, so we just have to follow how the book is set up. By the way, um, all of this is, uh, I of course, I've, I've written this stuff. So all of this in the book. Let me see. There it is. How to Read Job. It's a book I did with Trumper Longman. Just a little skinny paperback. Easy to read. Okay. All this stuff is in there. I also did a big commentary on Job, but you can get what you really need in this one. Okay. This one. Okay. So, so that was the commercial. So now back to the main program. So, <laughs> so where does the book actually deliver its message? If it's not in the human speakers, well, you can guess. It gives its message in God's speeches. You know, what were we thinking? Of course it does. So it's in God's speeches. But they baffle us. We read God's speeches and we say, whoa, whoa, what's going on here? You know, he's talking about all these crazy animals and the things they do. And you say, is this helping? And that's the first speech. And then the second speech, he gets talking about behemoth and leviathan. And some people say it's a crocodile and hippopotamus. And some people say they're dinosaurs. And some people say they're all kinds of things. And you're saying, this seems really distracting. You know, have we got an attention deficit problem here? Stick with the point. Let's go. Okay, but actually, it's in God's speeches that we get the answers. So what are the answers the book gives? The first speech by God, chapters 39, 38, 39, uh, the first speech by God is basically to help Job understand that he hasn't a clue how the world works. See, the whole retribution principle thing, remember, righteous, prosper, wicked, suffer. That's a very simplistic equation that Job and his friends said, this is how the world works. We've got it all figured out. This is easy. Simple equation. Righteous, proper, wicked, suffer. Huh, we've got it. Okay? And God says, he's more polite than to say this, that's stupid. 
What makes you think that you can reduce the world to a simple equation? Do you think you understand how everything in the world works, how I operate? How arrogant, how presumptuous. And so he gives Job lots of examples about things that Job and his friends would have no understanding of. But God says, yeah, all of that is within my plan, within my ordered world. I made it that way, and it works that way with a purpose. There's tons of stuff you don't get. At that point, Job's response after that first speech. Now remember, before I say, remember also that in that, God tells him, you know, you folks tend to think that rain is the blessing of God and that the big, terrible storms, destructive storms, are the, the judgment of God. And so you think of rain as either blessing or judgment. Don't you realize that it rains where nobody lives? It, it rains out there where nobody lives. What makes you think that rain is blessing or judgment and only one of those two? And so he raises all these questions. That's why his first speech is filled with all of these rhetorical questions, basically to indicate to Job, you don't have a clue. And Job responds appropriately to that. He says, basically, okay, I'll zip up now. I won't say any more. I understand that I'm clueless and I don't understand very much. All right, well, so um, so you're God and I'm not, and I should shut up. Some people think that's the message of Job. It's not. If it stopped after God's first speech, you might think that. But it doesn't. Because God wants more of a response than just saying, I know nothing. So we go to the second speech. And this is where we run into Behemoth and Leviathan. I don't believe for a minute that they're dinosaurs. I don't believe for a minute that they're crocodile and hippopotamus. It's very clear what they are in the ancient world. They are chaos creatures. And we in the modern world have no idea what even a chaos creature is. So that's why we haven't thought of those things. But in the ancient world, they know all about chaos creatures. Chaos creatures are not really in the material world, but they're not really in the spiritual world. You wouldn't expect to encounter one in the wilderness. But you wouldn't say that, oh, it couldn't happen. They are, they are creatures who are mm, in the, on the periphery, on the edges of the ordered world. And people in the ancient world used to think that they were kind of outside of the ordered world. That the Bible often brings them up to say, no, no, they, God says, I, I've, they're part of my ordered world. It's just people don't know how. It's sort of how we think about today when we think about earthquakes. At one point, we think earthquakes are kind of these random things that do massive damage, and they're horrible, and they're probably to do with sin and things like that. That's wrong. Okay, But other times, if you know a little bit more, you say, oh, but earthquakes are just the movements that take place because the tectonic plates of the earth are shifting, and that creates some some ramifications, and we feel those, and they can be damaging. But if the plates of the earth weren't shifting, we wouldn't, it wouldn't work. The planet wouldn't work. And so we can understand that earthquakes are the result of order shifting tectonic plates for good purpose, but also non-order disruption of order because when they happen, they can cause 
pain and death and damage. So is it in the ordered world or the non-ordered world? We can't always figure it out too easily. Okay, so that's kind of chaos creatures. So move that idea of tornado or earthquake or tsunami or viruses to, uh, to the creature level, chaos creatures. It's the same kind of idea. Today, lots of people talk about the virus as if it is um, a part of sin, the result of sin, or God's judgment. Viruses are things that God created. They're a part of God's good world. I've been told by my science friends that there are, let me get this number right, 10 to the 31st viruses in the world. That's more than there are stars in the universe. 10 to the 31st viruses. Only a couple of them are dangerous to us. The rest do a job. The job they do is that there are also 10 to the 31st bacteria in the world. And viruses keep bacteria in check. And if they didn't, we'd all be dead long ago. See, there's more than we know to this ordered world. Anyway, when we get to the chaos creatures, Bamoth and Leviathan, we finally get to the key message of the text. Now, people have read those all sorts of ways, and, and it can be confusing. Some people think it has to do with God beat up Leviathan, and so he can beat up, what, evil or something. Now, Leviathan doesn't represent evil here. Look at the description. Bamoth and Leviathan don't represent evil. It doesn't talk about God defeating them or killing them or chaining them or anything of that sort. Read the text. The point of Bamoth is God says to Job, I made Bamoth just like I made you. So Job and Bamoth are compared. And then he says, what does Bamoth do when there are rushing, surging waters that stands firm and secure and trusts? Bamoth is Job. Job is Bamoth. Bamoth stands secure and stable in raging waters. So when waters rage around you, they standing secure and stable. Trust. Then he goes to Leviathan. His point with Leviathan is how, how uncontrollable Leviathan is by people. It doesn't talk about God controlling him or not controlling him, but how people cannot do so. So just as the book compares Bamoth to Job, the book compares Leviathan to God. And the point it makes is, you can't control Leviathan. You'd never dream of it. Look how fearsome he is. Look how, how unruly he is. You can't control Leviathan. So guess what? I made Leviathan. So you shouldn't think for a minute that you can control me. You can't domesticate God. You can't put him in your little box and say, this is how you have to work. 
You can't back him into a corner and say, this is what you need to do. God is not someone who can be put in a box. He can't be domesticated. That goes back to the transactional thing. You can't think that you'll do your bit, and now I have to do my bit. That you've kind of earned or forced me to do something. You can't manipulate me. So, when there are raging waters, stand firm. And when you go through life, don't think you can manipulate God, domesticate God. Any Narnia fans out there, remember the line in book one about Aslan, he's not a tame lion. He's good, but he's not a tame lion. And that's what that's the basic message of Job. The book then wants us to trust God and his wisdom, not to figure out his justice, but to trust his wisdom. And we trust when we don't have answers. If you've got answers, then there's no need to trust. But you trust when you don't have answers. There's a section I like. I'm hunting for it now quickly. Should have looked up this beforehand. There's a section I like. I don't know if any of you have read the book, The Shack. Um, it's back in the 70s now. Uh, so it's not around as much as it used to be. It was kind of a, an interesting book back in the, the 70s. Oh, wait, not the 70s. This says 2007. Wow. Anyway, not as far long ago as I thought. Anyway, it was a rather controversial book. It was self-published at first, and then it was such a runaway hit that a publisher actually picked it up. That doesn't happen that often. Uh, but it became kind of a, uh, a a real fan favorite, so to speak. Anyway, um, the uh, here's a section. Uh, I'll read a little bit to you. Is that all right? Not a bedtime story. Don't go to sleep. You try to make sense of the world in which you live based on a very small and incomplete picture of reality. It's like looking at a parade through a tiny knothole of hurt, pain, self-centeredness, and power in believing you are on your own and insignificant. All of these thoughts contain powerful lies. You see pain and death as ultimate evils, and God is the ultimate betrayer, or perhaps at best as fundamentally untrustworthy. You dictate the terms and judge my actions, God speaking, and find me guilty. The real underlying flaw in your life is that you don't think I am good. If you knew I was good and that everything, the means, the ends, and all of the processes of individual lives is all covered by my goodness, then while you might not always understand what I'm doing, you would trust me. But you don't. You cannot produce trust. You, just as you can't do humility. It either is or it is not. Trust is the fruit of a relationship in which you know you are loved. And because you do not know that I love you, you cannot trust me. That's powerful. 
You might hate the book, but you got to love those lines. It's powerful stuff. And that's really what the book of Job is to give us. It's to give us a sense of being able to trust God's wisdom. Now, before I open it up for questions, um, Job is having difficulties. When he begins suffering, he finds, first of all, that he experiences turmoil. The turmoil is the opposite of rest. Rest talks about experiencing order, um, stability, security, experiencing order. That's rest. God rests among his people when he, he's in the tabernacle, the temple in Eden. God rests among his people. But we experience unrest. God's rest, by the way, is God's rule. It's not his relaxation. Rest is the absence of unrest. Rest is the absence of turmoil. Now, we experience turmoil all the time and unrest in various ways. Um, and yet we're told that God is one who can give rest. But the, the rest that God gives is a perspective that can transcend our circumstances. God doesn't tell us he's going to take away all of our turmoil, resolve all of our unrest. He rather is going to offer another perspective that helps us to transcend, to look beyond our turmoil. So when Jesus says, come to me, all you who labor, heavy burdened, I will give you rest. First of all, he's not saying, I'm going to give you downtime. Secondly, he's not saying that um, I'm going to take away all of your turmoil. What he is saying is, I'm going to give you a kingdom perspective. Take my yoke upon you and adopt a kingdom perspective. See the bigger picture. And so what God is able to do, even though he does not always take away our unrest, he gives us rest through another higher perspective. And he also says that he will give us peace. Uh, peace is not the opposite of war. Peace is the absence of fear. And that's why Jesus can say that I can give you peace. Rest speaks to our circumstances. Peace speaks to our feelings. When we feel like nothing's going right, again, when we feel fearful, whether it's because of riots or war or disease or whatever it might be, when we feel fearful, God is able to bring peace. Uh, my peace I give to you, not the peace that the world gives. Okay, it's a different level of peace. Again, you can read verses like John, 26, uh, John 14, 27, John 16, 33. If you're jotting things down, I won't go to them now. Isaiah 26, 3. 
God is the provider of peace. Jesus is the provider of peace. So we may have turmoil, but we can experience rest in a kingdom perspective. We may have fears, those feelings of fear, but Jesus can provide peace when we trust in him. And that will bring us coherence instead of confusion. When we're suffering from unrest, when we are feeling fear, then our thoughts are confused. Rest is our circumstances. Peace is our feelings. Coherence is our thoughts, how we think through things. Job found coherence in the retribution principle, and that collapsed. God was trying to give him an alternate perspective for trying to get some coherence. And his coherence would be found by trusting in God. Proverbs 3, 5, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Don't lean on your own understanding. That is your own ability to make things coherent. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. That's that the opposite element of coherence instead of confusion. And of course, Colossians 1.17 tells us that in Christ, all things cohere. Again, it's a kingdom perspective, a lens of, of Christianity in Christ that helps us to see the coherence of all things. So Job is speaking to Job, first of all, who is lost his rest, has lost his peace, and has lost his coherence. And it tries to rebuild those. And that likewise is a kind of message that it gives to us. We may not suffer the same kind of turmoil or fear or confusion that Job did, although sometimes there's clear similarities. But the book is trying to help us to think about God well when life is filled with turmoil, fear, and confusion. How to think about God well when life is wrecked. It's a very necessary message. It's a very relevant message. It didn't just become relevant in the pandemic. It's relevant in uh, every aspect of life in this struggling world. And so I find the book of Job uh, to be a book that can give a good deal of assurance to us, even though it may not be giving the kinds of answers that we thought it was giving and may not be solving the problems that we want to solve. Why does God let people suffer? One last comment, a little story, and then we'll open it up for questions. Some people say that, well, I don't understand what God's doing, and he's not going to give me answers, um, but I'll find out someday. You know, when I get to heaven, you know, everything will be explained to us, and I'll know why, why all these things happen to me. I think we ought to be careful about that. I'll return to that story in a second. We ought to be careful about that viewpoint. Uh, you know, in John 9, um, when Jesus and the disciples encounter the man born blind, 
the disciples think they're going to get an answer to this Job question. Who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? See, they want an answer to the why question. Why was he born blind? Obviously, somebody did something wrong. They say, obviously, somebody did something wrong. They've got retribution thinking in their mind. And they think now, here we've got a scenario. It's, it's, a, it's a doozy. Do you use the word doozy? And anyway, um, it's, it's, it's an incredible one because there's not an easy answer. If the parents sin, then why does this guy suffer? And he couldn't have sinned because he's been born this way. So they think they're going to get a really cool answer from Jesus. So who sinned this man or his parents? And Jesus says, he's so cool this way. No. <laughs> no, it was neither this man nor his parents. And, you know, they're going, oh, man, <laughs> he, he did that again. He did that thing that he does, you know. No, no. He says, um, but that the Son of Man might be glorified. Now, at that point, notice what Jesus is doing. He's not answering the why question. He's not talking about the past. He's not talking about reasons or cause. What he does is he turns their attention away from the past and the why question, and he focuses it on now and going forward. The Son of Man is to be glorified. That's not the cause. That doesn't answer the why question. It answers the what for question. It tells him, where do you go from here? Instead of explaining why it happened. Okay, so with that story in mind, here we go. We think that we're somehow going to get to heaven and we'll get all the answers to our why questions. I think Jesus' response in John 9 should warn us against thinking that that's going to happen. But let's, let's play it out a little bit. So you get to heaven, and you're looking around, and you see a long line. And you see that in front of the line, there's a booth. And the booth says, answers, explanations. You say, oh, yeah, that's the one I was waiting for. I'm going to get in that line. Now, the line's really long. You know, and so you stand in line for about 20 years. But it's heaven. You know, you've got forever. It's just a little worse than Disney World. And so you, so you stand in line and, you know, meet some people along the way, you know, and, and you finally get up to the booth and there's Jesus sitting in the booth. And you say, oh, yes, now I'm going to get these answers. And Jesus looks you in the face and he says, I'm so glad you came. Tell me something. Do you love me? Oh, yes. Yes, Lord, you know I love you. Oh, that's good. That's good. Do you, do you trust me? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I trust you. That's great. That's great. Tell me, do you know, do you know that I love you? Oh, yes, Lord. I'm so grateful for that. Yes, I do. I know that, that you love me. Good. Next. That's what you get. He loves us. We love him, and so we trust him. Okay, I've given you plenty to think about, and I didn't even talk about lots of other things that you maybe are thinking about. So, Pablo, should we open it up for questions at this point? Well, yes. Um, yes. Um, this is just like a small delicatessen, just a very small... Um, 
but I'm very grateful uh, for what you have taught us tonight. I hope that those who are connected to the Zoom call have been, you know, challenged in some way. You know, this is very interesting. I never thought about this way before uh, because this is all this, this is what this effort is all about, is try to um, get involved with, with more uh, scholarly work and how that scholarly work help us to help uh, biblically, you know, uh, getting closer to the text and and having a new or more maybe a fresher perspective or view regarding any book of the bible so thank you so much um well i'm not surprised i i really missed uh, your classes <laughs> i really enjoyed them um so um I'm, I'm really thankful um if you have a question you can please text me through the chat and just tell me i have a question i think that is uh, a little bit more um, organized. Um, I don't have a question right now. So in the meantime, I want to show you, uh, you need to have this Bible. Uh, it's called the Cultural Background Study Bible. And if you are a fan of the King James or the New King James or NIV or EST, all those Bibles, and I think NLT is coming soon. I don't know if... It's already there. Uh, I'm not sure about that. Okay. Uh, but I know that ESV is there. Uh, New King James, uh, the New King. New King uh, James and the NRSV. Okay. Oh, that, that that's the other. Okay. Yeah. So you can, uh, this is a very, very good, if you don't have any book from John, you can start here. Okay. And he wrote all the notes of the Old Testament section, the Craig Keener, a New Testament scholar. He wrote the notes from New Testament. I actually, I brought this from Wheaton. And actually, it was Dr. Walton who gave me the, the tip. Um, he, I don't know if you remember, John, but you sent me an email. I was studying in the, in the, in the study room. And he sent me an email. And he says, uh, um, Adam Miglio, who's a professor at Wheaton, he's uh, getting rid of some books. And he's selling them very, very cheap. So I went it like in five seconds. <laughs> I was there. It's just beside uh, John's office, and uh, yeah, he had cool books, and and one of them was this beautiful Bible, um, the cultural background study Bible. So I I will recommend it to you. Uh, it's a, there's a lot of information here, very very useful, and um, I highly recommend uh, I re recommend it uh, to you. I have a question here um, from Christian. Christian, why you don't ask uh, Dr. Walton by yourself? Okay, I, I'm going to unmute you. Because you were you were advertising so good that I wanted to know all about the books. <laughs> Um, hi, Dr. Walton. I will read. Um, can I do two questions, please, if you wouldn't mind? Sure. Okay. Um, first, could you explain the purpose of the chapter 28, please? Because for me, it seems a little odd because Job was struggling so much to that point of the book 
but then he gives such an amazing speech about wisdom. And the other question is, could you explain the ending of the book, please? Because if the whole matter was that stuff didn't matter in according to why he was serving God, but at the ending, he gets all the stuff back and even more. Uh, could you uh, give your explanation, please? Sure. <clears throat> uh, so first of all, uh, chapter 28, the wisdom, the hymn to wisdom. Uh, I don't believe that's Job talking. Yeah. Um, yeah. It doesn't specifically say Job is talking. And uh, it doesn't say someone else is, but it doesn't say he is. And in chapter 29, when Job speaks again, it talks about kind of picking up again. So, but you're right. 28 is saying things that Job has not come to understand so far in the book. And even when you get past there in the book, um, he still is not there. So I take verse 28 as referring to the narrator. The narrator... Ooh who gave us the opening part, who gives us the closing part. This is the narrator. It's a transition then from the dialogues that have just finished into what I call the discourses, which are um, all of the rest until the, the epilogue. So it's a transition. And it basically says, you've just been listening to four people, Job and his three friends, who are supposedly the wisest people in the world. They got nothing. They, you, can, you can see that they've reached dead ends. They haven't given a good explanation. And so this is not wisdom. Wisdom has to start somewhere else. And that's why he sets it up. Wisdom uh, begins with the fear of the Lord. Uh, none of the friends really have been expressing fear of the Lord. So... Uh, that's uh, that's how I would see 28. Now, in terms of the uh, the latter part of the book, the ending, uh, people say, well, why does Job get it all back? Uh, the book doesn't have to do with Job. It has to do with God. Mm -hmm. okay, what God has done is to basically say the retribution principle is not an equation of how the world works. It's not a guarantee. It's not a promise. You can't bank on it. You shouldn't expect that your life is going to go that way. But the retribution principle does express a general view of how God interacts with the world, not how he runs it minute by minute. But this is the kind of God he is. He's a kind of God that delights in giving good gifts to his people, his faithful people. He's the kind of God that takes the need for punishment and justice seriously. <clears throat> In that case, the retribution principle is theology. It's not an equation for how everything runs. When I talk about, remember I mentioned that Job is not on trial, but God is not on trial either. What's on trial is God's policies. See, what, what the challenge has been, does Job serve God for nothing, right? Okay, what he's getting at is, you know, God, think about it. 
it's not really a good policy for righteous people to prosper so much. If you keep blessing righteous people, they're going to come to expect it. And in fact, that's going to be their replacement motivation. Okay? Uh, if somebody, think of somebody who loves uh, volunteering at a hospital. And they spend a lot of hours there. They love the people. They love the work. They love helping out. And they volunteer at a hospital. And then you say, we need to start paying this person. And so you put them on the payroll. And you give them a salary. And you give them raises. Mm -hmm. And all of that. And before long, are they doing it still because they love the people? Or are they doing it because it's a job and they're getting paid for it? So the challenge to God's policies is, it's not a really good policy to bring blessing to righteous people. You're turning them into mercenaries. You're turning them into paid staff instead of uh, people who are just righteous because it's the best thing to do. It's a serious challenge to God's policies. It's not a flippant throwaway by the devil. It's a serious challenge and God takes it seriously. So that whole idea is testing God's policies. But God's policies are also tested on the other side. Because once Job starts suffering, Job's thinking is, you know, God, think policy. It's not a good policy for righteous people to suffer. I mean, we're the good guys, right? And, and so, so you should be protecting us or something. And so it's really not good policy for righteous people to suffer. So you have the challenge it's not good policy for righteous people to prosper. And it's not good policy for righteous people to suffer. Well, so what's God supposed to do? So basically what the book does is it throws away the equation, but it keeps the theology. And that's why Job is blessed in the end, because God is God is that kind of God. But it's it's not a guarantee. So that's how I would answer those. Mm. Thank you. I have uh, I have another question, and I really want to encourage you to to ask. Don't go to bed and then ask yourself, asking yourself, "Oh, why I sh I should have asked that question." So there's no bad questions. Uh, there's no damn questions either. So this is the this is the, the moment to ask um, any questions you have regarding Job or um, maybe another question. Uh, I have. A couple of them um, to ask, but I have uh, Dan Harvey. Uh, Dan, why uh, why you don't uh, ask your, your own question to John, please? Yeah, I guess I have to ask you because I haven't yet gotten to Wheaton, which is uh, another subject for another day. Um, but the uh, I guess the question I have is you 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 know you've given us the understanding and really the core focus of what Job is teaching us, what this book is teaching us. Um, and, and how we can have coherence and rest and peace and, and God is in control, et cetera. And then you've emphasized the fact that it's wisdom literature. So that's important to understand where, you know, what we're going to take from this. My question is, how much detail can we take from this? So when, you, when the, the narrator opens up the scene and then we, we have, you know, Satan wandering in with the sons of God and this conversation between God and him, is this just part of a, a stage being set so the principles can then be portrayed to us and we can learn the lessons or can we with later understanding go to you know the new testament we see there's a clash of kingdoms there is an unseen realm uh, you know ephesians 3 that through the church 
you know, his wisdom would be, would be made known to that realm. Um, do, can we take lessons from the Old Testament from wisdom literature about that realm? Or should we just got, not get too caught up in that and just focus on the main, um, the main core lessons being conveyed to us in the book? I'm inclined to, to, I mean, as you laid out the options, I'm inclined toward the option that says this is just the, um, the setting of the stage, setting of the table based on ancient world ideas that his audience would have understood and that it is not trying to give teaching on the unseen realm. I noticed you used the word unseen realm. I don't know if that means you've read Michael Heiser or not, um, who has a book of the unseen realm. And Michael and I disagree on this. There's a lot of things we agree on, but on that, on that issue, we disagree. He thinks that it is giving teaching about how the uh, heavenly spheres are structured, and I don't. Um, I think it's using a setting common from the ancient world, and it's just a setting. It's not the teaching. Would, would that be, be then from the hermeneutical principle of, of like, uh, I, I know I've, I've enjoyed some of your other thoughts that you've conveyed in, in Genesis, and just getting an understanding of the culture to whom yeah. the, of the audience, so the cultural river, if you will. You know, we tend to see things from our culture, but taking it from their culture, why that wouldn't, that would have just been window dressing for the main lesson being taught. Right. So the setting is geared toward giving them a familiar scenario. Um, it's not teaching that this is true, which really in this case helps us quite a bit because, you know, you, you have people who say, boy, I really had a bad week. I wonder if Satan and God had a, had a conversation about me this week. And no, don't go there. It's not trying to tell you this is how things work in heaven. So we, if, that, if that's correct, we can't even ask the question of, well, how come Satan's allowed in heaven? You know, or, or, you know, those kinds of things. Those are asking the wrong, my view, the wrong kinds of questions about the text. Very good. Thank you. Um, well, I have, a, I have a question here. And thank you, Dan, because you uh, already uh, mentioned one of the expressions that are very, uh, helpful to understand uh, one of Dr. Walton's expression, the cultural river. Uh, can you explain a little bit more about that? And also uh, one of your well-known phrases is um, the Bible was written for us, but it wasn't written to us. Uh, what do you mean by that? And why is it so important for us when we study the scriptures? Well. Um, thanks for bringing us up, Pablo. You know, I love talking about those things. Uh, yep. <laughs> the, uh, certainly, we understand that the Bible is, is a treasure. It's a gift from God. It's his revelation of his plans and purposes. And so we, we recognize that and we understand then that the Bible is indeed for us. Uh, but we also know that it's not in our language. So it can't be written to us because it's not in our language. And if it's not in our language, it's not in our culture. And you all know this. You've had plenty of experiences of reading, especially the Old Testament, and saying, I have no clue what they're talking about. But yet an Israelite would have, would have known perfectly well. So it's not written to us, but it's written for us. And therefore, if we're going to get the message that's for us, we have to first figure out as best we can what it meant to them. Because the to them is the foundation for the for us. 
Now, if we're going to understand what it meant to them, we have to try to do two things. First of all, we have to try to put our own cultural presuppositions out of the way so that we don't read something foreign, that's us, onto the text. We don't want to read something foreign into the text. So we want to try to recognize our cultural givens. Try to move them aside. It's a huge, heavy thing, so it's hard to move. Okay? And then we want to try as best we can to understand their culture. That's even harder because it's difficult to penetrate another culture, especially a dead culture. So those are things that we want to try to do, but they're hard to do. I use the cultural river metaphor. We have a cultural river. They have a cultural river. Okay. And the Bible is not written with our cultural river in mind. When I talk about our North American cultural river, I talk about things like, of course, democracy and freedom and individualism and rights. Uh, But also we can talk about market economy and expanding universe and uh, social networks. And all of those things are part of our cultural river. But of course, the Israelites did not know anything about our cultural river. And God did not hide things about our cultural river in the Bible for us to find. He spoke to them. And so we shouldn't expect to find discussions of monarchy versus democracy or market economy versus agro-pastoral economy or uh, evolution um, or those kinds of things. We shouldn't expect to find verses about social network. He's not hiding things for us. Okay, so we have to try to get to their cultural river and understand that as best we can. And fortunately, we have plenty of resources, over a million cuneiform texts, that's not an exaggeration, that give us windows into the ancient world. And that's what that Bible that Pablo showed you, the Cultural Background Study Bible, that's basically a cultural river study Bible. It gives you all kinds of notes about the cultural river so that you can understand it better. And so when we try to understand a book of the Bible, that's what we're shooting for. Uh, to interpret the cultural context, the literary context, that is how the book was shaped, the linguistic context, that is what the words mean and what they're signifying. Okay, Uh, sometimes it can help to know the historical context and, of course, the theological context. Context is everything. And it comes in those five, probably more, but those five categories. Cultural, linguistic, literary, historical, theological. But it's their contexts that we have to try to understand. Then we can bring them to our contexts. Thank you. Um, Pablo, that your your painted room is the same color as my shirt. that was very nicely coordinated. Yeah. Yeah. Did you paint your room just? <laughs> <laughs> well, we are actually tonight, we are staying at my in-laws house because they are in Canada. You painted so, your in-laws house? <laughs> well, not yet. I, <laughs> Cheryl wants to do it, though. <laughs> Good color. So, <laughs> uh, 
to 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 that tonight we came here to take care of you know pets and you know things in the house anyway so uh but yeah you're right i didn't know that you were wearing that nice green shirt coordinated, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um well i think dan do you have another question go ahead brother You you got all the controls tonight, Pablo. Like you wow. can actually literally shut us so down powerful. and shut us up. That's that's too much power in the hands of somebody from Chile. A lot of power. Yeah, exactly. Um, it was just more a general question. Um, j just based on the, on on the emphasis and the, the the significant importance of co of context, which we know you stated in these five areas, context is everything. Would you say it's fair to say that as much as we treasure and love the Word of God within you know, across the evangelical world and within Christianity in general, that by and large, the majority have never, ever taken the time to learn how to read the Bible, and that most of our errors and understanding and assumptions about God and ourselves perhaps are, you know, direct derivatives from the fact we've never actually taken time to learn how to read the Bible. Uh, I, I think that that certainly answers a lot of the questions and explains a lot of the things that we struggle with. The, uh, in fact, uh, totally opposite of what I just talked about, lots of people expressly go to the Bible to try to figure out how it speaks to their cultural river. They don't try to put their cultural river aside. They assume that the Bible is transcending its cultural river. But what's happening is that they end up going to the for us without going through the discipline of figuring out what it says to them. People today want to read, I think they would say, I want to read the Bible as it is. I just want to open up the pages and let it flow across, you know, the, and, and that I'll soak it in and um, the Holy Spirit will speak to me. Well, the Holy Spirit can speak to you through all kinds of things, whether you're reading the Bible or not. Uh, we're not going to put any limits on the Holy Spirit, but don't confuse that for interpretation of the Bible. That's not interpretation. Yeah. Uh, if you want to interpret the Bible, you've got to pay attention to what the author is saying, because the Holy Spirit spoke through that author. And you don't want to bypass the author and just say, the Holy Spirit now is just going to speak to me, regardless of what the author meant to say. Again, the Holy Spirit can do lots of things, but that is not interpretation. You might as well just put your Bible away and just pray for the Holy Spirit to speak to you, um, because that that that's not interpretation. Um, and so the problem is that when we try to read the Bible that way, kind of ad hoc, as is, what we're actually doing is imposing our foreign cultural river on the biblical text. And in that way, we're not tethered. We're not tethered to anything. We're not accountable except our own feelings. And we, we go through our, our lives trying to figure out, well, what's the biblical view of, of business relationships? What's the biblical view of economics? What's the biblical view of leadership? What's the biblical view of medicine? What's the biblical view, biblical view, biblical view of diet? What's the biblical view of nutrition, of dating? Of, we, and it's a travesty. The, the Bible is in its cultural river. It doesn't have a biblical view of dating. There was no dating in the ancient world. And when we do that, 
we are squeezing the Bible into a box that it was never intended to work within. And so I think that to some extent, you're right that many of the things the church struggles with today is because we're struggling with how to interpret the Bible. You know, there are a number of good books out there, easy to read paperbacks, you know, Saving the Bible from Ourselves is one title, uh, Glenn Powell. Another one, um, how, how to Read the Bible in a Changing World by Mark Strauss. Um, Misreading the Bible with Western Eyes by Randy Richards. Um, and Richard Schultz, Out of Context. Uh, a number of good, easily readable paperbacks that will help us start to fix some of those problems. So we don't limit God's ability to speak to us via his spirit, impressive or whatever. But when it comes to understanding the text, we Correct. have to get to the context. Right. The Holy Spirit's ministry is, is broad ranging. Right. When we're reading the text, we have to get the Holy Spirit's ministry through the authors. Right. We don't want to do an end run there. Yeah. That's helpful. Thank you. We have a, uh, thank you. We have a question from Robinson. Uh, Robinson, he's in Houston. Good to see you, brother. Go ahead. Uh, my question to you is, um, we hardly ever hear expository preacher on Job. I think um, one time I heard uh, Steve Lawson speak on the Job 1. Uh, some of what uh, Brother Harvey was saying about um, inter interpreting the text properly. And... Um, that's one question that I have. And the second question is, did the common Israelite, were they very acquainted with this book? When uh, Ezekiel chapter 14 says that um, this uh, Noah, Daniel, and Job were uh, uh, examples of righteous men, uh, did they in, uh, see him as, as, the, as such? And, um, you know, like, uh, it's, a, it's a lot more study that we have to do on this book. Because, like I said, uh, I hardly ever hear anybody uh, uh, preaching on, on Job. Okay. Um, first of all, yes, from Ezekiel, we can figure out that they know of Job. Whether that means they know the book is another thing. Remember, I think mm -hmm. the book was written on the basis of the, the experience of this guy that everybody knew. Mm -hmm. They knew Job. That doesn't mean they knew the book as we have it. Maybe they did. Maybe they didn't. We don't know. Okay. okay. In terms of preaching, the reason why it's difficult to preach is that, of course, it's a long book, 42 chapters, mm -hmm. but you can't preach through the book because in most of it, they're wrong. So you, you can't say, okay, today we're going to preach you know, through chapters you know, 7 through 12. They're wrong. They're just dead wrong. So it's very difficult to preach it because if you're going to preach the message of the book, mm -hmm. you've got to preach the whole book. And that becomes difficult. Now, you could preach it in segments. Okay, so let me give you an example. One, one year, every once in a while, I do some pastor's conferences, and there was a week-long pastor's conference that I did uh, on the book of Job. And the premise of this conference is these, these guys come together, guys and uh, both men and women, they come together for a week. They have an academic talk about the book, 
And then they talk in the afternoons about how they would preach it. They brainstorm ideas. And then they go home after a week with a whole sermon series that they can use. And some of them came saying, oh, this isn't going to work. I can't do a sermon series on Job uh, because lots of pastors have the experience that people aren't in church every week. And if they're not there every week, you can't preach the wrong parts of Job one week and then get to solve it all three weeks later. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's almost like you have to preach the whole book in one sermon, unless you can really count on the fact that people are going to stick with you over five, six weeks, and you can build it part by part. Okay. I think that's why it's not preached. But also, I think lots of people, even pastors, don't know what to do with the book. So that group of pastors that I was teaching, they were really sharp academic pastors. They had all uh, demons. I mean, it was they, they were sharp people. But they had never heard the kinds of things that I've taught you tonight you know, in the book of Job. So there's a lot of misconception about the book, and that makes it hard to preach. Okay, because the, I mean, um, like Brother Harvey was saying about verse 6 of chapter 1, it's, you know, like it's hard to understand until I see it from your perspective. It's not really, the text doesn't say that specifically. But it's, uh, it, you know, it's nevertheless, it's, it's difficult to understand. And like you said, it's difficult to preach on it. And uh, thank you for um, all your help. You're welcome. Okay, uh, there's last, the last question uh, is from um, Constanza, but uh, she, she asked me to try to formulate the question in English, although she has pretty good English, but um, she, she would like to know, um, can you say hello at least, Constanza? Hola. Yeah. Hola, Hello, I'm Constanza. <laughs> okay, so uh, do you want to try to formulate the question, or, and uh, then I can help you if, 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 or you want me just to you want me to try to phrase it for you? Okay, I'll try, but I don't okay, think. Okay, don't I'd worry about it. Just, just go ahead. <laughs> um. I want to know about this heaven scene. It interests me a lot. And I want to know if in the case that uh, it has the purpose to settle this scene and introduce the, the scenario for, for the book, um, what the, the people in that time, that culture, understand with this scene? Which other literatures use this model? Is it right? <laughs> okay, yeah. so, yeah, I got, got the drift. So the divine council is known throughout the ancient world. Um, sons of God. The sons of God is the divine council. And that scenario is known throughout the ancient world. It's in the Bible um, as a setting kind of thing. So that's not unusual. Uh, there's not really an equivalent char character to Satan in the ancient world. Uh, but I think we also misunderstand the character of Satan in the Old Testament. I can't get into that tonight. You can read about it in the books. Um, I also have a book uh, called Demons and Spirits in Biblical Theology, and that's got a whole chapter on this as well. At any rate, um, 
So really that whole setting is really just to pose the question, does Job serve God for nothing? It's just to set up the question. Uh, again, it's a question about God's policies. It's a question about uh, whether there is such a thing as disinterested righteousness. Uh, so it's really just posing the wisdom question. And an Israelite would have understood the, that scene. And if I can uh, add something to what uh, Connie asked, uh, there's other parallel literature in the ancient world that would be similar to what we see in Job. This is a critical question because some people, as you you know, uh, you taught us as well, they say, oh, they're borrowing from the Bible. So this relationship within uh, between uh, the world of the Bible and the surrounding cultures, the surrounding cultures, they also had a lot of literature. So uh, there's any anything similar to Job? Uh, this in a, in a, I don't know, in a similar fashion? There, there are other accounts of people who are uh, presumed innocent and righteous and pious and all of those things, and yet they are suffering greatly. Those kinds of stories are in the ancient world. There's nothing that gets anywhere close to the book of Job for the sophistication of the philosophical issues and the answers that it gives. Nothing close. Well, thank you. Um, thank you so much, uh, John, for sure with us tonight. We really appreciate it. I appreciate it a lot. I don't know if you guys uh, enjoyed it. I, I, I have enjoyed it. And um, thank you. We, we, I hope this is going to be uh, for your encouragement to know that it's a lot of people that you don't know. And they are somehow um, familiar with your work and uh, just to encourage you to keep going. And um, I, I didn't say this at, at the beginning, but um, I think one of the gifts the Lord, the Lord gave Dr. Walton is to work and work. Uh, so he's like a machine sometimes. And um, <laughs> I, I, I really appreciate that. Um, he, he, he has written a lot and um, still writing, still working. Actually, he's writing right now a commentary in the book of Daniel. But that will be next year when we talk about that book. <laughs> so uh, thank you so much. I don't know if you want to say something. I'm, I'm closing right now. You, you want to say uh, something? No, I, I need to go. So it's been good to be with you all. And uh, you. I hope that you found some uh, usefulness, some benefit in, uh, in our conversation. Thanks for inviting me, Pablo. No, oh, you're welcome. Michael, can you just close briefly in, in, in prayer and we close the session? Yeah. So. Okay. Um, Father, we give thanks for uh, this wonderful time tonight to consider the word of God and uh, to be encouraged in the Lord. Uh, we just pray for uh, Dr. Walton here as a brother in Christ that you will continue to uh, bless him and guide him in his service for each of us here as students of the word of God that will be able to use this uh, for your glory and for your kingdom. 
Think of the great lesson tonight to know that the Lord loves us and we love him. And that's all that matters. And we just pray that we would take this to heart and to live in the good of it and to be the overcomers that the New Testament speaks of. So we give thanks for this time again and for the Lord Jesus in his name. Amen. Amen. Thank you all for coming tonight. God bless you all. Thanks, Pablo.